Welcome to Thriller Premium. Welcome to Thriller Premium. In-depth coverage and timely analysis of macro and micro happenings in crypto and Bitcoin. Welcome to Thriller Insider. banks are broke. And why are they broke? It isn't an act of God. They're broke because we have a system called fractional reserve banking, which means that banks can lend money that they don't actually have. It's theft from the taxpayer. And until we start sending bankers, and I include central bankers and politicians to prison, it will continue. To another exciting episode of Thriller Insider. Today is May 10th, 2021. And that's right, we're back for another Ethereal Summit Day 2 recap. Because we just it keeps getting better and better. <laughs> oh, Lord. It just keeps getting better and better. Um, this is Day 2. <laughs> you can tell how enthusiastic I am to be covering it. You know, this... This has been one of the most trying conferences of the year for me. Oh, man. It's so much. It's so much to cover, guys. Oh, man. So much to cover. So much. But I do it for y'all. I do it for y'all because I know there's a lot of people that, that need this info, that need the insights, you know, and you don't have 10 hours of your life to dedicate <laughs> to going through this this conference, but I do, but I absolutely do. I spent all weekend going through it. I finished editing it, you know, yesterday. And then today, you know, I was like, you know, let's go ahead and clean it up. This second day is just horrendous. <laughs> the amount of yeah, yeah. Like, I don't know what, De you know, I don't know what decrypt was doing. I don't, I don't know how much consensus paid them for decrypt to, to host this uh, conference or to do the, uh, to do this, this is horrendous. The audio is so bad. It's so bad. They need to get their money back. <laughs> like seriously, I, I don't know what's going on here. Joe Lubin, what are you doing? I hope you didn't pay him an ETH. You shot up to 4k today. Get your money back, bro. Get your money back, bro. Get your money back. Yeah, it's it's pretty bad. You know, I try to clean up as best I could, y'all. Giving you a heads up ahead of time. But it's pretty bad. You know, it's 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 worse than yesterday. Just giving you a heads up. The the audio and the, the interviews that they're doing, it, it's worse than yesterday. Um I cleaned it up as best I could. Um yesterday was was I thought was atrocious. 
um, so that you kind of you kind of get the idea of what of what you're going to get today at the taste. <laughs> today today we're going to be talking all about uh, Ethereal Summit. You know, it's the third year of us covering this. It's a place for collaboration of technologists, artists, startups, entrepreneurs, investors engaging in all the latest developments in the Ethereum blockchain decentralization ecosystem. You know, it's where they uh, speak to a broad community of people who believe that the world can be decentralized and can be organized a little bit differently. It's a beautiful world. I want to believe in that world. Today, you know, we have some we have some pretty good panels. Actually, there's like really only one great panel. <laughs> I'll play that at the very end. So you stick around or you can fast forward, you know, your choice. Uh, these are the these are the, the five. No, actually, there's six. These are the six best panels of the day. I mean, there there was a there's quite a few of them today. There's more today than than um, or I should say there was more Thursday than Friday. But there is there's six six genuinely good ones, right? Um, and these are the ones I chose. The rest of them were just you know shilling, um, you know, projects. Uh, nothing, nothing of value there. And um, yeah, just nothing of value. There's nothing to be nothing to be learned in those things. Um, <laughs> I got an email yesterday or this morning. Uh, you know, and I'm not trying to call this person out because, you know, I'm sure he was because I actually I actually opened up this um, this episode to everybody, which I'm going to do today again, because I think, you know, there's a lot of people who want to know about Ethereum. There's a lot of, you know, people that that love this stuff, which is cool. And uh, they were like, hey, I noticed you didn't play the Mark Cuban panel. Ladies and gentlemen, there's nothing we can learn from Mark Cuban. <laughs> I'm just, I'm telling you the truth. Um, there's really, there's absolutely nothing we can learn from Mark Cuban. I'm, I'm telling you. So that's just, I listened to the panel. Trust me. I listened to it. There's absolutely nothing there. You can go and listen to it on, on YouTube. There's nothing there. Absolutely worthless. Um, so... Um, yeah, so that's why that's why that didn't get played yesterday. You know, there's just nothing there. Uh, the guy got into crypto like this year, or whenever it was last year, or whatever. There's there, you can't learn anything from somebody like that. Just, no, there's nothing there. Okay, <laughs> it's just like what you can't learn anything. So in the very beginning. The very first panel we're going to talk about here is from Vitalik, right? You know, in every one of these, there there is either you know somebody like Vitalik or Joe Lubin that that goes on stage at Consensus, uh, or I should say Ethereum Summit, and um, you know gives us kind of a rundown of the state of Ethereum. This was it. This is where I, you know, Vitalik goes and sits down and, and talks, you know, to a journalist and says, "Hey, what's going on with Ethereum? Give us the lowdown." You know, what do you think of the space? And this is usually where Vitalik gives us the lowdown of the space of what he thinks of Ethereum. And then he kind of he kind of he kind of name drops a couple projects that he's bullish on, you know. And then, um, yeah. So take a listen. This is very insightful stuff. And um, I think this is worth a listen for sure. 
Let's do it. For me, I think uh, the next thing is uh, definitely just getting Ethereum from where it is now to the point where it gets actually doing and being used for interesting things and actually providing real value to people. And like, there's a lot of uh, just really fascinating and interesting stuff that's been done on Ethereum. Like, you know, people have uh, talked about the DeFi space a lot, for example. But and uh, you know, NFT is as just something that's. Uh, like really managed to sort of like break out into the mainstream and get a lot of people interested. But then there's all these experiments around you know, decentralized organizations, decentralized uh, governance, um, proof of humanity type things, uh, proof of participation, and just all of these the different gadgets and just di different ideas for how like people can organize and work together over the internet that are being uh, developed on Ethereum. And it would just be great to see more of those like you know actually break out and is like turn into something that's uh, like just really helps people work together better on a large scale um and i think uh, like just nfts in particular like they're, they're an interesting case because they're like there's a yeah, kind of speculative um aspect uh to them and, and like there is an aspect to them that's not too interesting but then there's also this like big potential of uh, an opportunity to allow groups of people to, um, who before just had no business model at all uh, to uh, finally have a business model of some kind for the first time. Like, potentially this could be creators, it could be artists, it could be charities. Uh, so like, if that kind of vision can be made to work and you know, things like that actually can be used just as a way to is, you know, make positive some interactions happen that were that just could not happen before because there were all these useful things that just had no business models attached. And like, that's already a great outcome. Right? And it doesn't have to be NFTs, right? Like the beauty of Ethereum is that it's a general purpose and there's just so many experiments happening. And like, any one of those experiments succeeding would be amazing. Again, just like listing off like things that I think are cool, but that don't get enough love. Uh, I mean, ENS, I think it's just been around so long and uh, we don't realize that it's already a yeah, blockchain project that's providing a huge amount of value to the Ethereum ecosystem and you know can easily provide value to uh, many other ecosystems as well. Um, and it's just been working totally fine and well for a long time. 
Um, like status is using it for usernames and messaging, and I'm sure we'll start. Again. They've been doing a lot of integrations with the existing DNS system lately, so I'm sure that will work well. Um, also, let's see. Um, Macy, I think, is interesting. This is this uh, blockchain-based uh, collusion-resistant voting system that could also be used to uh, like improve security for quadratic funding and, and um, all sorts of other use cases. And right now, it's still kind of early stage and it's still being developed, but mm, potentially it's something that you know could be used to make like something like Gitcoin grants more efficient. It could even be used to um, hold secure votes at some point. Uh, so we'll see how that goes as well. Um, I think like in the future, uh, use cases that combine together blockchains and like cryptography, like zero knowledge proofs, are going to be uh, really powerful as well. Um, oh, another one, um, open certs, right? It's uh, just various kinds of certifications just being put on the uh, uh, on the Ethereum blockchain, or at least the Ethereum blockchains being used to like check that they're still valid and they and that they haven't been revoked. Like that's just one kind of simple and useful thing that's been running for a while. Important to remember that like the ETH two roadmap has something that has changed quite a bit over the last few years. So I think the vision around three to four years ago actually was to just make a, a new chain that would change a lot of things that would fix all of the mistakes in the existing Ethereum system. And then add proof of stake, add sharding, and finally come up with some kind of way for existing applications to move over. And I think the roadmap has like, evolved to become more pragmatic over time in um, a lot of ways. Uh, so especially as the merge has come closer, there have been a lot of these um, subtle changes toward emphasizing just making it a very smooth transition for developers. Um, so just like as one example, right? Like in the roadmap as it was in 2018, like it would have probably required um, individual application developers or just individual users to take their assets and move it over from the ETH1 chain to the ETH2 chain. But now like, there isn't even moving from chain to chain happening, right? Like the, the two chains are even merging together. And the thing that we call the ETH1 chain today, like that's being renamed the execution chain, right? And the thing called the beacon chain, it's like being renamed uh, the consensus chain. And these are not going to be two separate chains, right? Right now, there's two separate chains, but after the merge, the execution chain is going to live inside of the consensus chain, right? So every beacon chain block will contain one execution chain block. And so, you know, you'll literally have a chain inside a chain. Um, and the reason why we did this is to just make the merge process as uh, simple as possible and as uh, smooth as possible for users, for client developers, and for uh, contract and uh, application developers, right? Because your experience of Ethereum as a user is not even going to change all that much between uh, before the merge and after the merge. Like you download the software and uh, your experience uh, you know, just interacting with Ethereum, the Ethereum chain looks very similar before and after. The only difference is that before the uh, Ethereum execution blocks had some proof of work attached and after these uh, Ethereum execution blocks will not have any proof of work attached anymore, but instead they'll come packaged inside these uh, beacon chain blocks. Uh, so like there's a lot of complicated technical wizardry happening in the background, but you know, from the point of view as a user, you don't even 
have to worry about that as much, right? And so like, there's a lot of continuity between Ethereum before and Ethereum after. It's not a replacement. It's actually a fairly small, slow and incremental uh, kind of upgrade uh, where basically the entire ecosystem is, uh, is being sort of taken from um, running on top of this older proof of work design to running on top of this and newer and very powerful proof of stake design. And then with the ability to add sharding and um, other lovely things on top. Um, so, you know, basically like post-merge Ethereum is Ethereum, right? Like there isn't this sort of like, you know, you have 1.0 ETH and 2.0 ETH. There isn't this kind of like, you have a 1.0 ecosystem and a 2.0 ecosystem. It just is the Ethereum ecosystem. It always will be the Ethereum ecosystem, right? So basically transaction history before the merge, it will still be in this proof of work chain. And at some point, like Ethereum uh, clients are just going to kind of delete the old code and they're not going to speak the old language anymore. And people are going to have to kind of create, either use old nodes or create special purpose protocols to, to handle really old data. Um, so that like, I think that's just a kind of a necessary technical decision, right? Because we're like, we are trading off some, a couple of different factors, right? Like on the one hand, we, do, we definitely do not want Ethereum nodes to just continue becoming more unwieldy and more complex to build and run over time, right? And so if you don't want that, then like the only way to do that is to forget old things, right? To forget like old, older transactions, older uh, protocol rules, and like have the newer versions of the software focus on uh, just being able to process the chain as it is today and say as it was in the last like say year or two. Um, but if you still want to go in and look at things that happened before, like you will be able to, right? And there's already third-party protocols. Like for example, the graph is one thing that people are starting to use to look up history more efficiently. So there are going to be a lot of ways to do that if you still uh, just need to access uh, history for whatever reason. But it's just sort of being taken out of the scope of like the things that you that a node has to do in order to be an Ethereum node that's part of the network. So when I heard this, I immediately thought this is a bad idea. <laughs> this is a bad idea on so many levels. Right. And I can already hear the Bitcoin maxis now go off on this and they probably don't even know this exists. Right. And to the average Ethereum, you know, investor or even like NFT holder, they hear this and they don't even know what this means, right? So you're not even gonna be able to even check like your past transactions on the Ethereum one chain. So everything that you're purchasing now, you're not gonna be able to check any of that data in the future, right? So I'm sure they're gonna build out something like he's saying, they're gonna have some kind of like, um, you know, protocol or some kind of, uh, uh, application that's going to do this in the future. And that's going to be all fine and dandy. Uh, the fact remains though, that on chain in whatever client that you're using, um, you're going to have to take their word for it. Right. And, and that's not how crypto or decentralization is done. Um, this is a big problem with Ethereum. What's the point of doing this? Right. What's the point of, are we doing this? Why are we doing this in the first place? Just to create money, create tokens. This is what we're doing here. And so when I when I heard this, I was like, okay, cool. So Camilla, who the person is, is actually 
interviewing Vitalik, I was like, she's going to bring up immutability. She has to bring up immutability. <laughs> she has to bring up immutability. Like she has to call him out on this. She can't let him skate by. Right. She has to do the right thing and call out Vitalik about this, because if you can't, you can't just say something like this and surprise everybody with like, oh, yeah, by the way, um, all of ETH1 transactions, we're kind of pocketing that and we're going to hide it away. And then now we're starting this new thing where, yeah, if you want to look at any ETH1 transactions. Yeah, well, that's in the rear view. We're starting from here now. <laughs> like, so take a listen to what Camilla does. That's really interesting. I wonder if if there's kind of um, I don't know, like analysis there to to make to be made on um, just um, the immutability um, aspect of Ethereum. The fact that now, sure, like you you have like all the previous transaction history somewhere else, but because it's not part of the like the the chain at the moment. I mean, can can one argument be made that? Oh, like Ethereum isn't as immutable because that was erased. I don't think it should. It would compromise immutability, right? Because like the hash chain is still there, right? If you want to go audit it, like you can still check that you know every block had a hash of the previous block, and then you look up the previous block, and then that block has a hash of its own previous block, and you keep looking it up. Like there's no way whatsoever that an attacker would be able to like give you fake old blocks and convince you that they're real old blocks because like for every one of these old blocks, if they're real, you would be able to come up with a proof. And if they're fake, like there's no way the attacker can make a proof. Mm. Um, it is definitely like, there is, I think, a real uh, kind of cultural difference in expectations versus like something like Bitcoin, for example, right? Like where, in the case of like the Bitcoin ecosystem, they really value this idea that you with a present day Bitcoin node can just go and uh, validate every single thing that happened from day one. And in the case of Ethereum, like that's not really true, right? And if you actually want to go personally check that everything is fine, then like at some point you would have to like, you know, go back into history, use an older version of the Ethereum clients to, down, to check the older part of the chain, then use a newer version to check the newer part of the chain. And like, that is definitely a bit, a somewhat different a kind of relationship between the community and the chain. And like that fact, that's true in other ways as well, right? So like, for example, with proof of stake, like we talk about weak subjectivity and how like one of the trade-offs of proof of stake is that to get the full security guarantees, you do like there is some uh, kind of like minimum frequency. Like you, you have to uh, kind of log on at least once every certain number of uh, weeks, weeks or months. Um, and that's also something that proof of work does not have, right? So, like there's definitely trade-offs being made. I mean, obviously, the fact that we're doing this means that we think that the benefits are much uh, are much higher than the costs. Um, but you know, the trade-offs do exist as well, and that's fine.
So that was such an informing, you know, discussion, right? And and hats off to Camilla for like, you know, sticking to her guns and really like hitting Vitalik right back with that question. Um, hats off to her because she could have took the easy way out, right? And like said, oh, I, I can't ask him that, right? I'm, I'm, I don't want, I want to make sure that I get asked back to this, <laughs> this, this conference next year. But no, she saw, you know, clearly what, you know, anyone with a brain, you know, would see. And and so hats off to Camilla for doing that, because I don't think I honestly don't think if, uh, you know, you know, I don't think any other journalist would have done that. Right. So hats off. So next, the next panel I want to discuss is the. Binance in America, and, and it's not to, to talk about Binance. I really couldn't give two craps about Binance. It, it really is to talk about Brian Brooks and how he sees the landscape regulatory-wise, because this guy actually has a lot of insight into how that looks in Washington. And that's all I kind of just took out of this panel. <laughs> I, you know, CZ was actually at the conference, and there's really nothing we can learn from CZ I mean, he has a security token and it, and it's doing its thing, right? And um, and so yeah, if you want to learn about that kind of crap, just go to crypto YouTube. There's a lot of shills on there shilling, you know, his stuff, you know. So I just don't have patience for that. But if if uh, if you want to learn about how the whole regulatory side of things is going to work, which is my interest and a lot of people that hold cryptocurrencies, it should be your interest too, especially Bitcoin. Um, then Brian Brooks is a guy because he has insight into it. So take a listen to what he says about how the regulatory landscape is going to kind of play out here in the crypto and Bitcoin space the next four years. I, I wouldn't say it's necessarily just to fix things in Washington, but obviously the gating factor for every crypto company at the moment is whether Washington is going to make this easier or harder. And, you know, listen, I, I, th I think there were a handful of us in, uh, in the administration who did have a thesis for this. So, yes, I think I can help on that front. One of the missions for us in D.C., of course, is to show the regulators that Binance U.S. really is a separate company from Binance.com. We're run in the U.S. The focus is the U.S. market. We only serve Americans. 
And, uh, you know, I think there's been some misunderstandings about that. So being an evangelist for that and having a very clear strategy for governance and ownership and other things focused on this country is, is going to be a big part of the story. Yeah, well, the, the, the issue you're going to have at the outset is kind of a cacophony of different regulators wanting a piece of this. That's, that's something that I think took a pause for the last couple of years. We had more coordination in the last two years than we had before. My sense is we're going to go back to the turf battles of, uh, of, of your. So if you look at some of the things that, uh, that Gary suggested in his testimony, it sounds like he wants legislation that would give the SEC jurisdiction over exchanges, whether they're trading securities or not. The issue there is going to be twofold, which is a, you know, I'm not saying it's a good idea or a bad idea, but he will probably have a fight on his hands with the CFTC. Because if you think about it, the CFTC statute makes very clear that cash spot markets aren't supposed to be regulated as exchanges. Um, so imposing regulation, let alone putting it at the SEC instead of the CFTC, will create some turf battles there that we need to watch. And then the other thing, uh, Jeff, that I would really look out for is SEC versus the states. So remember when I was at the OCC talking about fintech charters you know, for non-banks, the state regulators went crazy. I would expect the same thing here, where if the federal government tries to start regulating exchanges, which is currently the business of the states under their money transmitter licenses, you're going to have the exact same turf battle between states and federal government. So it's an interesting thought, remains to be seen where it goes, but I think it's not going to be easy. What he says really does fall in line with a lot of the rumors that we hear in the industry that Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, is very anti-Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and how she kind of wants to go after it. But then you have somebody like Gary Gensler, who's the SEC chairman, you know, very much is, you know, somebody who wants to take a thoughtful and more, you know, uh, you know, a smart approach to it. Uh, and then, of course, you have the CFTC. And um, so you can kind of see what he says here that, you know, you have all these people who have jurisdictions in, in different places, all kind of vying for position. And then you also have, you know, where we discussed, you know, last week we had the Federal Reserve, you know, directly giving access to these fintech companies, you know, to the, to the Federal Reserve payments layer. So it's kind of like all these different pieces moving at once. And, you know, you have the Federal Reserve going behind the scenes, trying to advance this kind of helicopter money right to consumers, you know. And then you had the banks too as well. So it's it's fascinating to see how this is going to play out here over the next you know three to four years. But um, yeah, so you really kind of have to get this information wherever you can. There's no one actually publicly speaking about this. So whenever you have somebody like Brian Brooks talking, 
or, or somebody like Caitlin Long talking, you kind of have to go and like perk your ear up and listen because that's where you're going to find out, you know, what's really going on. Okay, so the next panel is the Hollywood Eyes on NFTs. This is actually a pretty fascinating panel because, you know, one of the things about this whole, one of the good things I would say about this whole, um, you know, Ethereal Summit is they are pretty early and right about things. You know, it was two years ago, you know, when we went to New York and we saw that they had NFTs on display, you know, in Brooklyn. And then they also had, you know, the NFL there, they had the NBA there and stuff. And these were people that were talking about NFTs back then. And I thought it was just a bunch of craziness, <laughs> right? I didn't pay any attention to it. Well, this is one of those two where you have Hollywood here talking about, you know, NFTs. And right now this is me wanting to dismiss it, but you know, I probably shouldn't because this is probably what we're going to be talking about here in the next bull run is Hollywood entering NFTs or probably later this year, who knows? So uh, take a listen to this panel. Um, you'll probably learn something from it um, because it's probably going to happen. You know, it's just that crazy. stems from the fact that there's so many ways that this is revolutionary because it's not just monetization in my opinion it's it's really a fundamental re-architecture of the internet um and that that might sound uh, like hyperbole but if we look back in 10 years i think we'll be astounded by the extent to which nfts rewired how all content on the internet worked because ownership is a fundamental kind of tenant of what i think we want from things that we create right um, and that and when we go to the internet and we publish something, we are creating that. And it is it, having encoding ownership and property rights into it is going to really unleash a new economy and new rules to an economy and how the internet has worked. And previously, we've relied on ad models and everything has had an impermanence and a duplicative uh, nature where things could just be virally copied. Now there's an ability for something to have scarcity, to have provenance, to have true property rights encoded into the file. Um, and that is revolutionary. Now, will this take 10 years to truly manifest and to truly kind of break into like 
mainstream culture so that every day when you're on the internet, you're using an NFT and you're not even thinking about it. Yes. Um, it's a long journey, but I, I think it's one of those like moments where the box has been opened, the imaginations have run wild. Um, and you can't put those ideas back into the box. Um, we're, we're kind of going to be with this for a while. And I think you're going to watch it go up and down in terms of how much hype and speculation and energy there is. But long term, I think you are talking about a fundamental breakthrough in how the internet is structured. Um, and people, and, and you, even if you speak to the artists who are really putting this to work, they're never going to not want this tool at their disposal. Uh, the idea of them going to the internet and just putting something on the internet with no property rights encoded into it won't make sense. It'll seem, it'll, it'll feel really silly not to do that. Why would you, like, perhaps you'll actually be subversive by not doing it in the future, right? As an act of protest of saying this is free, right? But on the whole, the vast, vast, vast majority of content and, and creation will get encoded with these property rights. Um, and, I, and I do think it's a fundamental, going to be a fundamental property of the new internet. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple things in there, right? I think one is the, the first is the, the tokenization piece that you mentioned. Um, and I think that's going to have huge implications long term, right? Whether that is, uh, you know, a universe creator in the you know, sort of filmmaker space, right? Like a James Cameron, J.J. Abrams, uh, a John Favreau, Zack Snyder, folks like that who, you know, have such rabid fan bases, right? And could tokenize their fan base and you know, offer any sort of myriad of, of opportunities or, or special sort of access or, um, you know, perks, pieces of art, you know, anything sort of like that, right? If you look at it in the sports space, think about teams that could tokenize their fandom um, and, you know, the ability to, to offer certain um, special sort of, again, pieces of art, access, um, you know, relationships with players, whatnot, um, based on those tokens. Um, and so I think for us, you know, tokenization is, is going to be key um, as you look, you know, sort of more down the line, um, you know, just given sort of how many of these folks have such rabid sort of fan bases. Um, you know, I think to the, your other sort of question around, you know, how are talent and, and clients and whatnot looking at um, NFTs right now, um, you know, I think there's, there's two ways to look at it, right? There's the, the immediate sort of short-term um, and folks who want to play in the space and, you know, you look at, um, you know, some of the success that, that people like Blau have had and, um, you know, drops that the weekend have done, or, uh, you know, you look at what, you know, Brock did as sort of the first athlete to go and, and drop such a successful sort of set of NFTs and that's sort of more in the short term. Um, and then again, you look at sort of more of like, I would say the universe creators who are thinking about this long term and really looking at, you know, what sort of things can they do to, um, really sort of, you know, embrace what their audiences and their fans are looking for um, and allow them to, to produce sort of art and new medium um, for those folks. It's it. My, I have multiple thoughts. One, <laughs> I really have no objection to the splashy headlines. Um, I'm not a journalist and I'm not, I'm not running those publications and, uh, but I understand their perspective, which is that's what captures people's attention and that's what captures, um, people's ability to then say, what the hell's going on, right? What does it mean you sold a JPEG? I'm happy when people ask questions. So that that's really where, where, I, where I lie on that front, which is, oh, how, how can you now sell a JPEG? That's a really interesting question. And if you actually want to now go answer that question, you're going to have to go understand Ethereum. You're going to go have to understand wallets. You're going to have to understand cryptocurrency. You're going to have to understand IPFS. Um, and this is what we call the rabbit hole. 
And whatever, whatever flashy headline prompts people to really go and start digging into what is really a new internet. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm satisfied. I really, I'm not here to like make pot shots at all the different ways in which that's not productive because ultimately long-term it's not productive, right? If all you do is read that and say, cool, a JPEG sold for a lot of money. I'm not going to do any other research. I'm not going to, to understand any way or, or why that's possible now. Right. That isn't productive, but I do think it's prompted a lot of people to pay attention. Um, and, and what I think is really exciting is that NFTs, and I'll, I'll just keep emphasizing this. So, so for the audience is that NFTs are programmable objects, all of their value, all of their possibilities ahead of us. It's not like we just invented this thing that's static and there's a snapshot in time. And like that time is quickly passing. For example, you know, we just released our secondary market today on foundation. That means that as these NFTs change hands, there's a program running on the blockchain that then goes and affords the original artist a 10% payment in perpetuity. That is programmed into the blockchain. Um, that is really powerful. And that's something that can only truly unfold over decades. So we're talking about PAC, you know, PAC, PAC um, I, I love his work. Um, it will only continue to accrue value and it will only continue to create economic value on the internet. And the programmable nature of the NFT will only continue to kind of spread to all the parties that are interacting with these NFTs. And so I think like, this is something that's really powerful. It's very long-term. It takes, it takes a while to understand it because a lot of the examples of where it's power is demonstrated does require time and attention. Um, but no, I don't, I don't have an objection to the headlines as so long as the people reading those headlines and are and being shocked by them do go and ask themselves some questions about how this is possible and do some research on what is powering this new economy because that's the most important thing because if no one goes and figures and learns out uh, learns more about this um you know we'll, we'll it'll fizzle out and we'll have to kind of go back to square one of really teaching people why this is new and powerful yeah and i might just jump in there just quickly completely agree with everything uh Kayvon said and you know these flashy headlines have brought the conversation to a global level which has been you know incredibly important um, but it is it is important to recognize that a ceiling has been set and that, you know, in a traditional marketplace, there's steady and healthy growth that continues over time. Um, I do want to see how the market responds um, to the fact that, you know, there's a $69 million result as the, as the ceiling, but that the realistic pricing is still incredible, you know, when it's $500,000 to $700,000. Um, that's, you know, an incredible achievement. And I just want to make sure that people understand that just because it didn't break the $70 million benchmark doesn't mean that the marketplace is in effect, you know, in a downward spiral. It really just shows that there's still healthy growth that is necessary, um, you know, for, for the future. And that's what happens in any contemporary art auction. You have, you know, steady growth at the primary level where the gallerist takes hold of your pricing, increases it incrementally based on previous success. It's important to create that steady, you know, healthy growth over an elongated period of time for, you know, sustainability in the marketplace. And I would also piggyback on that is, you know, on foundation, we have simultaneously high profile auctions taking place mm -hmm. that are going for millions of dollars. Um, 
and artists like Pack um, or Edward Snowden or People Pleaser, right? That are that are breaking our million dollar mark. But the same technology is being used by over fifteen thousand artists on the platform, running the exact same NFT standard, running the exact same auction smart contract to create value for their work, and their work is gaining. And even if it starts at five hundred dollars, they're being given the same opportunity that Pack and these other artists are. And the, 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 level, the playing field is level. And you know, one, one thing I'd love to highlight is we recently ran an auction for uh, an Ethiopian collective uh, this past weekend. They organically arrived on the platform. Um, you know, the East Africa you know, network has actually started to grow on our platform. Um, and they were able to um, sell six NFTs this weekend for almost 40 Ethereum which is about, um, you know, I think they took home around like $50,000. Uh, and I mean, that's just enormous. They, and they use the exact same technology. They access the same market, the same global market that any other artist now has access to, as opposed to saying, oh, are you in London? Are you in New York? Are you in LA? Um, no, well, these people were in Ethiopia, right? And they had the exact same experience. That's really powerful. And by the way, the art was incredible. It wasn't, it was, mm. it was, it just never had the chance to find an outlet the way it can now find an outlet because the, the playing field is more level. I'm someone who's been, you know, building internet infrastructure for over a decade. And so I think really from my perspective, the, what has happened with blockchains is we've created an unprecedented amount of transparency. So if you really think about services like Google, Facebook, Netflix, if you were an engineer on the inside, and you know I worked at Google for five years, you were aware of the data center infrastructure necessary to power these computing resources, right? And the interesting thing, though, is that because of the nature of data centers where you can position them in strategic locations where they can tap into renewables and you can um, create really scalable architecture, you know, I do believe that they are a fundamental uh, improvement to our energy infrastructure. Right, because you can move them anywhere in the world, and because we're using the internet, you know, even if you're in a dense city, right, you can be tapping into a data center that's perhaps near um, a renewable source of energy, and you can still, you know, you can still use that service. So I fundamentally challenge um, the the tenant that this is somehow uh, an environmental disaster. I think it's just the fact that now society is wrangling with very transparent services that are exposing how these systems actually work to the, to the entire population, right? It's not behind a proprietary service like Facebook or Google, where the, all the operations are behind the scenes and you just use the interface, right? With blockchains, you're really confronted with, this is a public good, this is in the public domain, right? And everyone has access to it at the same level. And that's radically, radically different for society. Um, and I think that's what we're wrangling with. And then I would also say is the Ethereum community, well before NFT you know, started bubbling up, uh, we really had a movement to ETH2. And so we're not talking about a technology that is somehow static and not improving. We have a technology that is going to be making leaps and bounds in terms of its efficiency. I'm not aware of any technology that I would be more excited about right now than Ethereum for its ability to evolve at the scale that it's operating on. And I think people really need to reflect on some of these narratives and realize that they're not dealing with a static, siloed entity. They're dealing with an ever-evolving, fast-changing ecosystem. And that's really exciting to me.
so no ethereal summit would be complete without uh, an appearance by Novo. <laughs> and, and that's uh, Michael Novogratz, right? He's the uh, CEO of Galaxy Digital. Um, we were talking about him last week uh, because he just uh, made a billion dollar purchase, right? And uh, he goes in discussion about all of that. And um, he really talks about how he's building out this empire. And um, there's few people in this Bitcoin space um, that can really move markets. Um, and now he's one of those people. Um, so, yeah. And this this guy has a really bullish outlook on the entire space. And he provides some really interesting insights. I, you know, th- like I said it yesterday, you know, there's few people that you should probably listen to to understand where this market is headed, you know, when they talk. Um, and, and Novo is definitely one of them. Uh, especially when he when he spends more than 30 minutes talking, uh, you, you kind of have to be careful because he, he does a lot of shilling. <laughs> but, you know, there's some nuggets in there every once in a while. And I, I think I grab most of those nuggets here for you. So um, take a listen to what he has to say, because I think, you know, there there is some interesting things that he he brings up. Right. Um, so, yeah. second largest custodian behind Coinbase, right? $43 billion assets under custody. Um, they have a big sales force and institutional sales force that we inherit. Uh, luckily, there's the Venn diagram. There's not a lot of overlap. So it almost doubles the amount of institutions we'll be speaking to. We can cross sell our product. They can cross sell their product. And so you're kind of classic uh, why you merge, um, you know, prime brokerage uh, offerings coming. And so just as kind of an institutional player, it really, I think, just bolsters us. But far more importantly to me um, are the talent we're hiring, right? Mike Belshi and, and, you know, 60 plus blockchain engineers who are really hard to find these days. Um, you know, we've spent, I've spent since 2013 or 2012 in this ecosystem, but I've been a user of blockchains. Uh, I've been invested in a ton of companies that are helping build the infrastructure or we have at Galaxy. Uh, but we've never been a builder, you know, on chain. And now with this acquisition, uh, that new chapter opens up to us. And so uh, I think that's fascinating. And when I see where the world spins, right, like DeFi is coming and it's coming fast and we want to participate, not just as investor in it, but as a as actually a builder of it. And so um, that's that's really why we did the transaction. It's the human capital acquisition. Something really cool for us crypto nerds happened in the next last six months. Like we went from hoping to be an asset class to be an institutional asset class like that. And that means a lot. It means that if you're not long, you're short. Mm. So every institution we speak to, if it's a corporate financial institution, tech institutions are trying to find their way into the space. Um, And some of the smartest guys I know, I was out with 
a you know unnamed uh, ten billion dollar hedge fund manager who bought his first Bitcoin two months ago, and it was shocking how deep he was into DeFi and to privates and to already. Like smart guys learn fast. Uh, you know the biggest liquidity providers in our space were the biggest liquidity providers in the traditional inequity space, and they are building you know on the blockchain now. And so I think you're going to see a wild acceleration of how fast the architecture that we've all been talking about gets built. Um, and so to me, you know, fortifying yourself with both balance sheet, with talent, with with optionality uh, is wildly important. Right? People think, well, what's the TAM of our space? Who in the heck knows? It's growing so fast. And so when I think of Galaxy, we're making money in places we didn't think we were going to make money in. And I'm sure next year, like, you're going to look at trying to predict my earnings is going to be really hard because we didn't we didn't have an NFT business nine months ago because almost no one did. Or we had the beginnings of things. We had invested a ton in that space in our interactive wing of our company. Uh, but all of a sudden now, you know, NFTs are in inning one of a nine inning game. And the TAM of NFTs is hard to put your hand around. Maybe stupidly getting on TV or getting in the newspaper talking about crypto in 2013 and 14. Then I get kind of got stuck as a, at least as an unofficial spokesperson. To me, it was always about bringing people into the community, bringing people under the tent. And you got some, you know, guys that were really at the core of this that have been there that were never going to leave. But I've spent my last six years literally trying to convince people that this revolution was worthwhile was worthwhile because it was going to help us rebuild the way we saw the financial infrastructure of our country to make it more transparent, more egalitarian, more fair, um, more efficient. Uh, and so, because we have an economy that's broken, right? We have a capitalism that's broken. I don't, we're not going to replace capitalism with socialism. We're not. We need to fix capitalism because right now it's not working for a ton of people. And you hear that all the time. You know, people ask me about Dogecoin or GameStop. This is a young generation screaming out and basically giving the middle finger uh, to the system and saying, hey, screw you guys. Uh, there's a nihilism almost to it. And so I've been trying to focus on the constructive side of that revolution. Uh, I first saw it, quite frankly, in Joe Lubin's office uh, in 2015. I tell the story a lot. I went in there and I was like, whoa, this is more than just a financial game, right? This is a revolution and how we can kind of rebuild the, the world's infrastructure in a, in a, in a better way. And so I think the more people we can bring in the tent, the better. There are lots of investors whose first exposure to our space is gonna be through public equities. That's what they're used to, that's what they're comfortable with. We have funds that we're launching, right? We have a, a Ethereum ETF, we have a Bitcoin ETF up in Canada, we have index funds that in all likelihood in 10 years probably won't exist. If mm. the crypto revolution really does work, then. Right. So we're building things that we know have a half life. I think to be in this business, you've got to be willing to eat your arm and then grow a new one, uh, mm -hmm. cut your foot off and grow a new one. Right. Because you're not going to go from where we were to where we could go overnight. Right. It's a it's an iterative process. We talk about being the bridge between the institutional world and the crypto world, but it's really also between the old way of doing things and the way that's coming. Um, mm -hmm. And that's not a it's not a finger snap, right? It's not a light switch. I said, for us to succeed as a company, Galaxy, we need to decentralize.
own decision process, right? You got to trust different people in different areas of the firm. So even that kind of management decentralization has to happen to kind of grow as fast as this business is going to grow. It'll be a really interesting game to watch. Not game is the wrong word. uh, Thing to watch over the next five, six, seven years, right? Even within the crypto space, we have a project like Ethereum, which is really decentralized. And when I say that I'm going to get criticized, people are going to say, oh, that's not so decentralized. The talent controls too much. You know, like it's pretty goddamn decentralized. And then you've got a lot of blockchains, which I call binos, you know, blockchains in name only, who are doing wonderful things. Uh, you know, Binance smart contract isn't really a decentralized. You know, you really better trust CZ if you're going to put a lot of value on that thing. But he's innovating like crazy. And so there's a room, there's room in the tent right now for all of this stuff. We'll see if consumers care uh, about how decentralized things are, right? Look at the flow blockchain. It's, you know, it's purpose built for, for, for gaming and NFTs. It's not very decentralized, um, right? These are, they're not blockchains in what we originally thought about when we started this Bitcoin revolution, right? They're, they're not as secure decentralized. Will customers care? We'll see. Right now, most consumers are looking at it like it's the back of the TV. One blockchain is the same. So it'll be really interesting to understand, will the market start differentiating and say, I don't want to transmit huge amounts of value on, on, on these smaller d- databases uh, or less, less secure databases? Um, will regulators allow huge amounts of value? And so we're so early on in the game. To me, it's fascinating watching. I'm betting on lots of them. Uh, I think they are positive to the community. I don't want to be seen as criticizing, right? Because a ton of innovation is happening there. It's happening because you can actually, they operate so much faster and more efficient. And so, but I think that's one of the cooler things to watch over the next three to four years. the Miami Crypto City panel. And actually, this is my favorite panel of the day. Um, 
it, it, it just is. I think there's just so much great info in here. Um, you know, it has the Miami mayor, Francis Suarez, and then it also has the brilliant Sam Bankman Freed. So it, to me, it just, uh, yeah. And you couldn't have had the most two opposite guys in the world <laughs> on the same panel, but for whatever reason, it just works. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think I think yeah, this is definitely my favorite panel of the day, and it's it's uh, it's really interesting. I, and I can't actually I can't actually wait to get to Miami, you know, in June. Um, it'd be my first time going to Miami, but I just really want to see what this crypto city looks like. Like I want to see if it really is everywhere, because you know this guy's really talking it up. <laughs> and now I'm even more pumped, you know, after this panel to see what Miami really has in store, you know, um, as, as a Bitcoin crypto city. Yeah. So, um, take a listen. Uh, I think you're going to enjoy this panel and, um, yeah. You know, I think we originally came at it because we wanted to really get our name out there. And and this is one of the highest profile ways of doing it. And, you know, sort of did a survey of the, you know, kind of potential openings. And Miami really stood out there for, for two reasons. It's a, it's a great team and it's a great city. But, it, it, you know, also it's just a city that was a great fit for us with what, you know, Mayor Torres and, and, and the whole crew there have been doing to try and bring, I mean, you know, tech and, and particularly crypto in it, it, it's just really awesome working with people who get what you're doing and are excited to work with you on it. And, and so that, that was sort of really the kicker and, and just made us a lot, um, you know, a lot more excited to work with them than, than pretty much anyone else. And Sam, I mean, crypto moves so quickly, but one part of this deal is that uh, at least the Miami Herald reported that it's a 19 year deal. I know you might yep. not be sharing the duration, but you know, people look at that, and FTX is a company that didn't exist four years ago. I mean, how can a 19-year deal be safe for such a new company? I remember a few years back in college sports, there was something called the Bitcoin Bowl, and it had a crypto sponsor. It was supposed to be a three-year sponsorship, and then the sponsor had to pull out after one year. How can you guarantee yeah. the county, you know, we're good for 19 years? Yeah, I totally hear you on that. And it's, it's a good question. And I mean, you know, without going into the details, um, it's, it's been, um, and it's been a pretty good year for us. And, you know, to the point where frankly, we, you know, we don't need to rely on the other 18 years, um, you know, to, to have the, the, the funds for this. So we've got, um, it's been, it's been a phenomenal year for, for a number of businesses and, uh, and for, for, you know, the crypto industry in particular, and then I think us even more so. Um, and so that's given us a, a pretty big, uh, question. Well, I think just the fact that we're having this panel means that it is, right? The fact that you guys have decided we're not talking about any other city in America as crypto city. We're talking about Miami as a crypto city. And I think it started 
uh, you know, with, with building some friendships with people like Sam, uh, building friendships with, uh, you know, some of the other crypto exchanges like Brian and Fred and, uh, you know, and, and the Winklevoss twins and, you know, building these relationships to really understand. And then, and then I think the second piece of it was, you know, on, on social media, uh, you know, having, uh, understanding the, how big the community was. I mean, the number of customers, the number of holders of Bitcoin and of crypto, you're talking about tens of millions of people. And I'm not so sure that the rest of the world really understands quite how voluminous, how exciting and how energetic the crypto community is. I've tapped into it and I see it. And so we, we, what we've done is we brought Bitcoin conference, uh, you know, 2021 here to Miami from, from Los Angeles, obviously Sam's big uh, involvement with, with the naming rights was a huge uh, uh, turning point. And then I think we did some of the stuff on the city side also to project that we are a crypto friendly city. You know, we put Satoshi's white paper on, on the website. Then, you know, we, we passed a resolution that would allow for employees to get paid in Bitcoin, would allow for our, our residents to pay for fees uh, in, in Bitcoin and would allow us to potentially have it on as a ballot balance sheet item. So I think we took a very progressive stance. We're very aggressive. I got, I went to uh, Wyoming, found their legislative package, you know, try to introduce it in the state legislature, got very close to passing it on its first uh, attempt, which is very unusual, passed the entire House and passed almost the entire Senate. Uh, and it got bogged down in one last committee for an unrelated reason. So, I mean, it's, it's an exciting time. Uh, and I do think that this is the future of, of our world. And if we want to be a tech city in Miami, we have to take advantage of these opportunities to differentiate ourselves and to get ahead of our competition. You know, I think something has changed in Miami and I think maybe it was even born by the pandemic. It wasn't just the remote work. It wasn't just that Miami was open when a lot of cities were closed. I think interestingly, and this is something I started to start playing around with and toying with in my mind, even though I didn't agree with the curfew, um, there was a curfew up until like two weeks ago. So there really wasn't any nightclubs in Miami. There wasn't any partying late night. And I think what was interesting about that is the Miamians said, hey, wait a second. The key to our future is to build and scale sustainable businesses. And the key to doing that is to get involved in technology-based businesses. And so I think there, there's, a, there's a pronounced pivot from what I'm seeing in our city in terms of the way that we are. But listen, I've always said about Miami, if we're even, we're leaving, right? In the sense that if, if, if we have the same amount of laws that Wyoming has, there's nobody that's going to pick Wyoming over Miami. If we have the same amount of you know, tax subsidies that Georgia has on film subsidies. Nobody's going to pick filming in Georgia over Miami. So I, I think, you know, for us in terms of being competitive and, and, and you know, Sam's environment, you, you know, he's in an ultra competitive environment. You know, you're always looking for what is that edge? I think in the case of, of FTX for Sam, you know, it's indisputable that his big investment has produced tremendous return on investment in terms of the the the, the great media that he's gotten um, for for already. Uh, like he said, on day one, on day one, he could pay for it. And on day one, he got probably an incredible return on his investment. So he's clearly a good investor. Yeah. I mean, it's been, you know, and first of all, just to you know, echo something the mayor said, like, you know, there are a lot of things that Miami has going for it, which is great. But, you know, it really was embracing tech and crypto. That was the biggest thing for us. And for a lot of people that I've talked to, it's always had great weather. That's not new. Um, but, you know, people weren't, were, you know, weren't flocking there uh, three years ago. And I, I think it's clear what what's changed there. You know, it's clear what sort of, you know, set, set it over the edge. And so, I mean, thinking about the pandemic, you know, the first thing I'll say is we've been incredibly lucky. Um, I mean, there's there's been a lot of businesses that have been really hard hit this year. 
you know, especially brick and mortar stores. Um, and, you know, we, we got lucky to be in an industry where, um, you know, the whole thing is digital, the whole thing is online. And so, you know, the fact that, um, that it was really hard to have, you know, in-person sales or meetings or things like that was just not nearly as relevant for us. And, you know, frankly, if anything, people had more time than, than, than you know, they often otherwise would, um, you know, to think about crypto. And so, you know, overall, like, you know, it's definitely presented some challenges for us, but just, you know, really not much compared to, to the average business. And, you know, we've been really fortunate in that. Our core user base has always been power users. It's always been the most engaged active users because, you know, first of all, we, we've, we've been really proud of our product and those are the users who sort of, you know, are most, um, you know, spend the most time judging it. And, and second of all, there are the users who are most likely to know about all, all the venues. We have not been around as long as any of the other major exchanges have been. And so that's one of the big, you know, challenges ahead of us, you know, over the next year is, is getting to the point where we are one of the best known ex- exchanges and where, you know, we see our, our main goal is, is for people to give us a shot. You know, people try our product and, and they don't like it, like someone else is better. Like that, that, that's not the fault of our marketing. That's the fault of our product and we got to fix our shit. Um, but, you know, if we can get to the point where, um, where people are giving our product a shot, I- I'm super excited. And, you know, I think that a lot of the things that you're seeing us doing are aimed towards that, you know, with, with the, the Miami Heat Arena, with, with Trevor Lawrence, you know, I think a lot of this is, you know, what can we do to, you know, both na- raise our name recognition, but much more than that, do it in a way that preserves our brand because our brand isn't just as like that crypto exchange everyone has heard of. You know, we, we have a brand as, as sort of one of the strongest, most innovative new exchanges. And it's really important to us that we maintain that um, and that, you know, we focus on the quality, you know, even more so than the quantity of the recognition that we get. Look, what I would say is, and what I have said to me, yeah, first of all, the answer is yes. I have gotten people that are skeptical. My dad, who's brilliant, you know, mechanical engineer, SUMA, two graduate degrees from Harvard, um, brilliant guy, um, was having a hard time understanding the concept. Um, I've been with uh, former law enforcement, high ranking, uh, uh, current uh, large uh, international bank presidents that don't get it. And and I'll tell you this, and, and I think it's really and this is why I think what Sam did and his investment and his, his strategy is so good. You know, if I were 10 years younger, right. If I'm, I'm 43, if I were 10 years younger um, in my, in my life, I probably wouldn't be mature enough to understand how to do what I'm doing. Right. If I was 10 years older, right. Right now, I probably would not have completely understood the opportunity. So I, a big part of it, and you know, is being at the right place at the right time, being young enough to understand why this makes sense and why this works and why people like it, and and being old enough to understand there's an opportunity here that I've got to take advantage of, and it, it could be a generational opportunity. So I, I think I think part of it is generational. I think for whatever reason, almost everybody, almost universally, that tells me that they don't get it is not in my generation. So I did buy, um, thankfully, <laughs> I, bought, I bought Bitcoin and Ethereum. I didn't buy Doge, uh, but I did buy Bitcoin and Ethereum. And I bought it literally the day, I'll never forget the moment. Uh, it was a day that the, the, that the $1.9 trillion um, spending bill passed uh, from the Senate and it was going to the president's desk. I said, I'm buying, that's it. If, if the federal government's gonna spend a trillion, 900, I mean, $1.9 trillion, then I, I, I think I need to have some, and this is going to definitely go up. And I, I frankly, if they spend another 2.2, 2, 
on a, on an infrastructure bill, it's going to continue to go up. I mean, there, there's just no way that it can't because I don't I don't think people are going to want to stay in, in dollar denominated uh, currencies. And if you look at uh, Bitcoin in conjunction with the dollar, I mean, one Bitcoin is what, uh, 58,000, 59,000. I'm not sure what it is today. Uh, you know, dollars. So it, it's already become one Bitcoin, this this digital asset, this digital uh, currency, this 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 thing that we all agree has value, has already surpassed the dollar in value by a large amount. I mean, people don't talk about that. That's 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 the one thing I think doesn't get talked about enough, is that you've already created a decentralized, um, disconnected. And when I say disconnected, I mean disconnected from a central bank, a system of storing value and exchanging value, whether it's perfect or not perfect, whether it has flaws or doesn't have flaws, whether it's not going to be improved or, or whether it's going to survive. Or, in the long run, those are all separate questions. But the fact that this has gone from from obscurity, right, all the way through fairly good mainstreaming um, to a point where one one a Bitcoin is worth, you know, $60,000. I mean, it's crazy. It just really goes to show the power of the idea. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, it's been uh, it's been really cool to see what's happened, uh, you know, to crypto over the last uh, over last year and see how. It's it's sort of you know acceptance in the world has gone from like five percent to sixty percent like it's absolutely phenomenal how big that move has been in terms of the fraction of people who uh, who 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 think it at least might be a, a really big thing I'm um, including you know highly regulated financial institutions which have gone from you know almost none to almost all of them planning to do something in crypto um, and. Uh, you know, I think that that's I, I think that that's really big, and um, and I think that's going to give a lot of staying power and stability uh, to to crypto as well. Because you know, the more people that are bought in, the harder and harder it is, um, you know, to to get rid of something. Um, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of people who like to phrase it in terms, you know, in an adversarial sense of like, you know, regulators trying to to, to fuck us over or something. That's not what I think is. Is is going on, but and obviously everyone has their own uh, you know opinion on on uh, on it. But I think by and large, it's like look, there's a lot of things that regulators have to. They have a hard job, and crypto is a totally new thing, and the amount of headaches that it causes um, are just large because in a way that's really intertwined with their value because they're kind of rethinking a lot of the system from the ground up. I think that's super exciting, but also just means there's a lot of groundwork to do, and there's a lot of territory to cover. And, you know, it takes time. Um, you know, I think regulators are aware that, you know, they're going to have to roll out, you know, more clarifications globally about a ton of different areas of crypto over the next decade. I think that's how long it'll take, though. And so it's not going to happen tomorrow. Um, you know, I, I expect in the next five to 10 years, there's going to be a lot more clarity. You know, part of this is that there's, you know, 200 countries and like they each have to do this. Um and part of this is that there's a lot of departments that, that get involved here, right? Because it doesn't fit nicely into, like, you launch a new stock, right? And it's like, great, the SEC is going to think about this. Or, you know, you're like, okay, we want to trade, you know, napkin futures. And the CFTC is like, great, it's basically a commodity. Like, here's the guidebook. And you're like, I want to trade Ethereum. And like, oh, geez. Like, is this, is it like, like, who is this? Is this like an SEC thing? Is the CFTC? Is it OFAC? Like, it's sort of, can touch all of them, maybe, and, and what what even is, is a cryptocurrency? And, and so, because of this, you know, it's also this sort of like many department negotiation going on, where you know every major 
department that touches the financial ecosystem has to figure out how they're going to interface with cryptocurrency, everything from derivatives to settling to securities and disclosure uh, to AML, KYC, and, 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 you know, a bunch of other things. So it's, it's, not, yeah. it's not a small task. To some extent, yeah, I, but I, I don't know if they're jockeying to do it or jockeying not to do it. Like, there's, there's two ways to think about it, right? One, one is trying to claim dominion, and another is sort of a game of hot potato. Everyone's like, geez, we got a lot on our plate. You guys want to handle this one? They're like, no, no. <laughs> and and I, I think there's like a little bit of each, you know? Yeah. And, and I think that sort of, you know, a lot of global regulators, I think, are basically saying, look, this is going to take time. If we can get away with it, we don't want to have to come up with a plan right now. We want to kick the can down the road, but we'll absolutely regulate things that are egregious. Like if you do something really bad, yes, absolutely. That's in our purview. Really bad things are in our purview. That's what we do as regulators. Like cryptocurrencies, we haven't figured out if that's a commodity or if it's a currency or, or, or a, a new thing. And, and we, we look, we got all these cases we're dealing with right now. Like it, it's a six-year roadmap. And so I think a lot of people are basically trying to, you know, a lot of regulators basically trying to figure out how can they do what they need to do now to make sure nothing really bad happens. While giving themselves time to you know educate themselves and and kind of like feel their way around, see what role it's going to play in society, and figure out what the appropriate uh, you know uh, track to take is. And and overall, you did completely reasonable. The only thing that I would say is that you know, the frustrating situation to end up in in a company is to have a regulator say, "Look, this is a regulated financial activity that requires a license in order to do, and also we have not released a license for it yet." That's the thing that is really frustrating to hear because then we're just like, look, like, I don't, you know, how do we proceed here? Like we, like, we're trying to work with you, but you know, just like, you know, I, I don't know what to do with that. Um, and, and so that's the one thing that, you know, I would, I would plead with regulars to try and avoid is to give clarity on like, what's the deal right now? Like if the deal right now is like, this will be a financial activity. It is not right now, but it will be. I'm like, pay attention. Totally fine with us. It's like, look, here's the very rough first bits of a regulatory, you know, regulatory framework. Great. We'll start working with those. It's just like, look, do whatever you want, but don't do anything really bad. Mm-hmm. And we'll come to this later. I'm fine with that too. You know, I think the biggest thing is just like, you know, just to explain what the pathway is right now for how we should be operating and moving this industry forward. Well, the regulation of Bitcoin and, and of crypto generally uh, reminds me a lot of how the governments were unable to regulate Uber. So what happens with Uber was there were so many Uber drivers out there on the streets. They came into Miami-Dade County, for example, and there literally was not enough police officers or code enforcement agencies, agents to regulate the Uber drivers. Like there, you, couldn't, you couldn't say that an activity that people use and were using every single day, we're using at the volume that people were using, um, you know, just be regulated from one minute to the next. So what ended up happening is we ended up having to make a deal with Uber. And I just, I, I think, I mean, you're not going to be able to, if you have 30, 40, 50 million people, uh, you know, 10 million, 5 million people in, in the U.S. that are using, uh, that are that are holding crypto, you're not going to be able to shut down everybody's computer. Like, it's not going to happen. It's 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 beyond the realm of, of regulation. So your best is to find a reasonable way everybody uh, so that you can, um, just like every other financial product that exists out there, right? And and every other, I mean, the stuff that's happening in crypto really is no different than anything else. The only difference is that the that there is a money supply control that is not central bank control. That's the only difference. That's really at the end of the day, because digital currencies, digital dollars exist. When you open your bank account, you you go into a website, you don't go into a physical bank and say, how many Francis Suarez dollars are there here? No, they're all US dollars. They're in your they're in your account. They're, they're a digital representation of what you have in your account. But by the way, 
fully uh, managed because if somebody hacks the bank, they wipe out all your bank accounts, guess what? You got zero. So, I mean, it's, 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 there's all kinds of issues. Uh, but I, I think for, for regulation, I think at this point, the genie's out of the bottle. They're not going to be able to put it back. If they would have wanted to kill crypto, they could have killed it maybe at the beginning. Um, but not now. I think it's, it's too big to, to, to regulate. You're going to have to regulate it somehow. Like, like, uh, Sam was just saying on the, on the licensing side, if you, you know, if you do things that are wrong, you could go to jail and those things can happen. Um, but, 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 but I don't think that, 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 that it will die by regulation. Like there's some people, some people fear. So that's um, that's the whole Ethereal Summit, you know. Um, there's definitely some panels that we left off, you know. I'm sure we're gonna get a lot of emails from those, right? People are gonna be like, "Why didn't you cover DAOs? <laughs> Why didn't you cover Chainlink? Why didn't you cover Gitcoin?" Um, you, you know, you know the DAOs. I, I really feel. You know, and I kind of said this during our South by coverage this year. There's just not a lot there yet. Um, in here, there was one panel for DAOs, right? And, you know, I watched the whole panel. There's just not enough there yet. Even at an Ethereum, you know, event, there was one panel for DAOs at an Ethereum centric event powered by Ethereum. <laughs> There's one DAO panel. So that, that shows you how early that is. Um, so I think, in the, I think in future years, there'll be more DAO panels. The, all the rage this year was NFTs, just like all the rage you know, at South by was NFTs. So um, yeah, in years past, it was DeFi. Like last year, it was just nothing but DeFi, DeFi, DeFi. Years before, DeFi, DeFi. Last year, there was sprinkled in NFTs. And then the year before that, there was just a little bit of NFTs. This year was just NFT, NFT, NFT. Um, so you're kind of seeing a trend, right? Next year, you'll probably see more DAOs, more talk about DAOs. That'll be a thing. 
and then the year after will be nothing but DAOs. So you can kind of see where, where the space is headed here in Ethereum, that DAOs are the next big thing. Um, at least that's what I got from Ethereal Summit, is that DAOs are the next big thing. That's going to be the next you know, cyclical boom that's going to take you know, Ethereum to the next level, I guess you would probably say. Right. You know, when we look at this next, you know, bull rally here in, 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 in the in the next, you know, next run, um, it'll probably be DAOs that that take it there. You know, this time it was uh, DeFi and NFTs. The next time it will probably be DAOs, you know, and something else. Um, but, yeah, you're, you're kind of you're kind of already kind of seeing that kind of trend up. And, and that's that's usually how it plays out. Uh, another thing I would would also mention is I have no doubt in my mind <laughs> at this point we are definitely going into a bear market. I think before before Ethereum Summit, I wasn't sure if we we're going to get into a bear market. I think now after experiencing 20 hours of Ethereum panels, I'm absolutely dead sure we're going into a bear market um, at some point, you know, either at the end of this year or at the beginning of next year. It's absolutely happening. Um, the amount of hyperbole that is getting uh, talked about, you know, in these panels, um, the amount of enthusiasm, the amount of just like sheer ignorance. Um, and yeah, they're just there's a lot of dumb money out there and a lot of people that are talking out of their butts. So be careful. Be very careful when you're investing in some of these altcoins. So it was it was pretty tough covering this this ethereal summit. You know, I think it's a lot easier covering it, you know, live. I would say, um, covering it virtually is pretty tough. Twenty hours is is a long time. <laughs> um, I will also say though, we're going to be going back to our regular schedule through the premium programming tomorrow with the rundown, and then we have consensus coming up on the twenty fourth. We have four days of coverage for that. So that's going to be all the industry news, all the industry announcements. That's when Bitcoin really starts rallying. I know right now we're seeing a little drop, but we're going to talk all about that tomorrow on Throw the Rundown. And then we have Bitcoin Conference on June 4th. That's going to be hell of exciting. One last piece I want to leave you with is be very careful with all the people that are shilling you projects right now. A lot of those people are scammers from 2017. And so they literally are just shilling you their bags so they can dump on you. Um, that's how they make money primarily. So if you're, if you don't know that, be very careful who you're listening to. Ask a friend, ask a neighbor. <laughs> Sound the alarm. See you next time.